0: Welcome everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy and safe. It's a big show. Let's not mess around. Let's get right to it. Later we'll meet Mark Williams. He played the English wizard Arthur Weasley in seven of the mega-hit movies from the Harry Potter franchise. He can now be seen in the Brit Box drama Father Brown. That's one of the UK's longest-running daytime drama series and we'll tell you all about it a little bit later on in the show. Then, Canadian comedian, actor, writer, and YouTuber Julie Nolke stops by to talk about how she amassed one million followers on YouTube, and we'll talk about her new role in the hit sitcom Run the Burbs. Then multi-award-winning humanitarian and community activist Akila Newton joins me to talk about her latest project, Big Dreamers, the Canadian Black History Activity Book for Kids, Volume 2. It's a celebration of the Black Canadians who overcame adversity and went on to achieve greatness while changing the course of history. That's a little bit later on. First, though, let's meet Sean Levy, the Montreal-born producer and director known for Stranger Things, Real Steel, The Night at the Museum franchise, and the recent mega-hit Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds. He has re-teamed with Reynolds for the Netflix sci-fi family drama The Atom Project. He joined me from Los Angeles via Zoom to talk about why the film isn't simply a sci-fi epic and finding a child actor who could keep up with Ryan Reynolds.
1: I've talked to you many times throughout my career. Always a pleasure.
0: It's nice to see you again. And congratulations on the Adam Project.
1: Thank you very much. This one was a uniquely satisfying experience because there's so much personal themes and emotions baked into it for both me and my star and fellow producer, Ryan Reynolds.
0: I think that people will see the ads for it or the trailer for it and think, oh, it's a science fiction movie. There's stormtrooper looking characters that get blown up, but it's not that. This is really a story about coming to grips with the past. What's your take on that?
1: Well, I'll answer you in one sec, but it, you know, as I think back uh, on, on what you've just said in my career in general, Um, it's something I've heard a lot over the years, right? People went to Real Steel expecting a boxing robot movie (laughs) and they got a father-son movie. They went to Free Guy thinking it was a video game action comedy and they got a romantic comedy. So I'm aware that I like defying expectations and I like a hybrid of genre and tone. Mm -hmm. So Adam Project is a time travel science fiction premise, but it's really about... Revisiting your own history. All time travel movies tend to be about save the world. Uh, this movie is about one man who needs to save himself. And he does that by revisiting his younger self and his parents only to discover a newfound empathy.
0: Well, wasn't it Mark Twain that said, It's amazing how much smarter your father gets as you get older? So I guess there's an element of that in the Adam Project as well.
1: There definitely is. I think that there's that. And there's also that as you come into adulthood, you realize that you need to see your parents as fellow humans, Mm -hmm. not just as iconic roles, right? I think for many of us, and maybe especially with dads, um, when we're young, we look at them with hero worship. And then at a certain point, maybe in adolescence, maybe in your 20s, you feel bitterly betrayed by their imperfections. And if one wants to have a healthy and happy life, I think eventually you need to reconcile all that, recognize that your parents are people who are doing the best they can, just like you, and that you can only really flourish in your own life if you are freed of those resentments uh, that tend to dominates so much of our younger selves.
0: Ryan Reynolds says that this was a personal movie for him. He had lost his father uh, years ago, uh, but he had said that he had told himself these stories about him uh, that helped make him or give him a sense of his own deficiencies or shortcomings. So it's interesting to have a star uh, that is that personally connected to this material, I think. How does that change the interpretation, I guess, of the performance, the uh, approach. He's one of the producers as well. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Everything is different when you're coming to a material for personal reasons and with personal feelings. So Ryan and I, who are on our second movie in a row together, we both tapped into some of these themes and connected them them to our own lives. And and we talked a lot about how there's stories we tell ourselves and others about our backgrounds and our histories, but that doesn't make those stories true. That doesn't mean that the version we remember is how it actually happened. And I think what you see in Adam Project uh, is Ryan Reynolds gives a performance unlike any I've seen in a Ryan Reynolds movie possibly ever. Yes, he's funny. He's charming. He's awesome action hero, but he's also at points deeply emotional, authentic raw, and it's because he was tapping into the character with things he's been through himself. And when you have an actor who's connecting in that way and who trusts you enough to show their real self when the cameras are rolling, that's a gift. And that's what you see on screen in the Adam Project.
0: You're listening to director Sean Levy on the Richard Krause show. His new film, The Atom Project, is on Netflix right now. Let's approach the time travel aspect of this.
1: It's not an easy thing, and it isn't necessarily <laughs> baked in and effortless. For me, my goal was: I need the science of the time travel to be sound, mm. but I need it concise and as absolutely simple and Comprehensible as possible, because I do not like time travel movies that feel like homework. I really don't like that when the point of the movie is to connect emotionally. So, Mm -hmm. for me, in working with both Ryan and Jonathan Tropper, our screenwriter, I would always say, No, 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 say it to me in simpler words that I understand. And then Jonathan would explain it to me in that way. And I would say, Okay, use those words in the screenplay. Why are we trying to sound smart? It's just going to be an impediment to the audience connecting with the characters. If you're engaging with a movie up in your intellect, I think it's sometimes at the cost of engaging with your heart. And the goal of the Adam Project was heartfelt engagement above all else.
0: You have to essentially cast two Ryan Reynolds. You have to find him uh, at age 12 or 13, as well as uh, the actor that we all know as Ryan.
1: A movie where it's Ryan and young Ryan, that's like a moonshot. to find a kid who feels natural on screen, talented, but who can also channel that very specific Ryan Reynolds inflection and delivery style, we found that miracle in this kid Walker Scobell who had never done a single thing prior to this movie
0: tell me a little bit about easing him in I mean walking onto a film set is intimidating no matter who you are I would imagine walking on one when you're 12 or 13 years old and have never done it before uh, must have must have kind of blown his mind a little bit how did you guide Do him you know through
1: what's that? so interesting Richard walking on set did not blow his mind <laughs> he is a really cool grounded, confident kid. What blew his freaking mind was meeting his absolute movie star hero of heroes, Ryan Reynolds. This kid has been watching Deadpool since he was seven. (laughs) So it's literally like if 12 year old, you or me had to make a movie with Mark Hamill, Right. right? That's what it was like for Walker. So he's working with his God. But the upside of that is that he had watched ryan reynolds on screen for so many years that the rhythms of it were innate to walker i never needed to teach him how to do it because he already knew as a fan
0: you must have shot at least well you must have shot this during the pandemic uh tell me the difficulties involved in that
1: yeah i did i shot this movie from november 2020 to march 2021 so you're in the midst of a pandemic Everybody on set, unless they are one of the actors and we are rolling, Mm -hmm. everybody's in a mask. Everyone who is anywhere near the actors at that point was also in a face shield. So you're literally breathing in your own air for 10, 12 hours a day. And for me, who is a person who gets fairly animated, as you can tell, um, I'm trying to convey what I want from the actors, but I'm doing it through layers where my face is covered and then another layer is covering. Right. And so I would just find it a unique challenge. I had to push so much energy through those layers so that I could connect with my actors and get what I wanted from them. And, uh, and, and yeah, it was challenging, but I'm also very proud to say that we didn't have a single positive test result on our set once in a 70 day shoot. And I credit part of that with shooting in Canada. Because Hmm. we shot in Vancouver, and it was like the mask mandates weren't controversial. They weren't hard to understand or comply. I think about if I had shot that movie in parts of the U.S., the drama, the political theater that I would have had to contend with. But the Canadian crew was like, yeah, okay, we'll wear a mask. Why wouldn't we? It should have been that simple everywhere. It wasn't. It was in Canada, at least back then.
0: This is the second film you've made with Ryan Reynolds. You're digging up interesting projects that are new and original and things that we haven't seen before in any other form.
1: Yeah, we're 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 unabashedly proud of that fact. We do we never set out to be champions of original film, but we are on a bit of a run right now where we found these stories that were not based on anything that the world had heard about in advance. And, you know, the beauty of original storytelling in a cultural landscape where it's increasingly rare is it gives you the possibility of audience surprise. It gives you the possibility of the unexpected. I love Marvel movies, but I generally know what I'm going to get when I buy that ticket. Right. Um, With free guy, with Adam project, I liked that it was a blank slate and you don't know the ride I'm going to take you on but it's certainly going to be something different than you expect. And, and, and to get a hundred plus million dollars to tell big canvas spectacle filled original movies, that is a privilege that is increasingly rare. And I feel lucky that I'm one of the few filmmakers that get trusted uh, with that opportunity.
0: That was Sean Levy on the Richard Krause show. Check out his new movie with Ryan Reynolds, The Adam Project right now, on Netflix. At the beginning of the pandemic, Julie Nolke uploaded a video that she wrote and starred in called Explaining the Pandemic to My Past Self onto YouTube. The comedy video depicted her time traveling to the past to talk to herself before the COVID-19 pandemic. It was an instant hit and over the next almost two years earned her over 1 million followers on YouTube. She parlayed that online success into roles on shows like What We Do in the Shadows and Workin' Moms. And she is now a series regular on Run the Burbs, the hit CBC sitcom starring Andrew Fung. I began the interview by telling Julie about my favorite part of her YouTube series, explaining the pandemic to my past self in the clip. She is talking to herself from four months in the future. Younger Julie says that she thinks the Australian wildfires will be the defining part of 2020.
2: Yeah. You'd think, oh, no, not even a little bit. Really? Because they're, they're a pretty big deal. Yeah. Your definition of a pretty big deal is going to change for sure.
0: Wow. And when that video blew up. Uh, What was your reaction to the success of that?
2: Oh, my gosh. I I didn't believe it at first because Mm. I've spent so many years on YouTube. I was sure that my system was broken
0: Um,
2: because, of course, that's what you dream about, right? You dream about going viral the minute you're on YouTube. Um, But I was actually lucky because I had already filmed and prepared the following video. So I didn't have that mental pressure of, oh, my gosh, how am I going to follow this up? I just... I just posted the next video as if it were any other week. Um, I also am thankful because I did have an entire year and several years behind it of uh, not many people watching my videos. So I never felt the real drive to, you know, chase the views dragon, right. To you know what I mean? To make the same thing over and over again, because I've already, you know, I, I've already had a year that was completely not successful. So I really have nothing to lose at this point, I guess is how I see it.
0: I don't think people understand how difficult this online life can be because you do feel the need at a certain point. I think you feel the need to feed the machine. You always have mm-hmm. to have a new video and and it can really uh, grind you down, I think, yes. especially when you are a one-person show or one or two-person show.
2: Absolutely. It's uh, the fear of being irrelevant of not having anything to say anymore of people thinking you're dated or, or aging out of YouTube. Right. That's a real fear of mine as well. Mm. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure.
0: You are working with Andrew Fung now on uh, run the burbs. So tell yeah. me a little bit about how that happened. This show is so popular. People love it.
2: They they just wanted to gather a few voices uh, for, for a very kind of preliminary writer's room. Mm. And so um, the, the, producers at Pier 21 were familiar with my videos and Andrew I mean Andrew knew of me but when Pier 21 suggested me he was like oh wow do you think we can get get Julie in (laughs) um and sure enough it was like exactly the opposite on my end because I was like what Andrew Fung wants me you're kidding (laughs) um so we bonded right away and this would have been the summer of uh shoot 2019 no 2020 summer of 2020 we got together for this preliminary room and then before we knew it we we had broken a couple episodes and then come February the show is greenlit and now it's like all hands on deck you know trying to get this thing made so I was part of the writer's room the the next stage of the writer's room um and then I took a step down because I wanted to audition for one of the roles. <laughs>
3: um,
2: and I knew I couldn't do both. I couldn't do uh, retain my current job in the writer's room and also do this role. So I kind of took a bit of a risk. But um, I auditioned for the role of Sam, the character. And um, yeah, and I got it.
0: As a working performer in Canada, I, I mm-hmm. think that risks are the only way to yes. get ahead. Otherwise, I don't think you're going to get too far here.
2: Absolutely. Oh, and I find that I I mitigate risk by
0: Mm.
2: uh, having more irons in the fire. Like I said, sorry to sound like a broken record, but it's, I, you know, I'll have run the verbs going and then I've got other projects and then I've got YouTube. And I think, I think it's probably going to catch up with me at some (laughs) point, this this ridiculous hustle, but it kind of, uh, it kind of mitigates the risk for every single one you take. And then, you know, you got less to lose. And I mean, for this, I'll be honest, I, I really, really wanted it. And I was even sneakily in the writer's room, you know, trying to make Sam more like me.
0: Absolutely. I would do the (laughs) same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Just because
2: I wanted to play her so badly, but um, yeah. And then we wrapped up production. We did it um, from September to November of last year.
0: And you've got a million followers on YouTube. Uh, This is a phenomenal landmark.
2: Thank you. I I don't even quite understand it myself. I mean, <laughs> I compare it to, I grew up in Calgary and Calgary in my mind has always had a million people. So I go, wow, the whole city of Calgary, <laughs> that's my only reference
0: point. Yeah. You're listening to Julie Noki on The Richard Krauss Show. Watch her online in explaining the pandemic to my past self on YouTube and on television in Run the Burbs on CBC.
2: But I mean, that's the beauty of YouTube is that I get access to a worldwide audience, not just the 33 or 36 billion in Canada. And so, um, you know, I've got, I've got more eyeballs. I've got a larger pool of people who can find my stuff and kind of the way YouTube works or any social media is that the cream rises to the top, Mm -hmm. or at least you hope that. And so as long as you keep your head down and you keep focusing on making better content, it will eventually get seen. It will find its audience.
0: Has there been any talk of turning, uh, the, the pandemic YouTube show into a television show into a stage show would be tough. Mm. You'd have to cast someone else, I suppose, <laughs> or have mirrors everywhere on the stage so you can talk to yourself. But has there been talk of of uh, doing something more long form with that or something similar?
2: Yes, I, I've had meetings about it, but I'll be honest, um, I don't really see it living. I, it served its purpose, I right. think. And I don't see it living on television. I, I think I've, we've seen examples in the past of different YouTube creators who try to migrate their stuff into the more traditional media, and it just doesn't work. And I yeah. think that's because the audience uh, expects a different viewing experience. Um, and I also think, you know, I'm, I'm happy with closing the chapter on explain the pandemic because I, it, it is kind of a time capsule of history. And I I want it to stay that way. I don't want it to be the cow that I'm constantly milking, looking for, you know, more inspiration, more views, more content.
0: What is the next thing? You run the burbs is a very going concern. You've got a lot of episodes (laughs) coming up on that. Uh, Mm -hmm. What's new? What's next for you?
2: Well, it's a bit of, uh, it's a bit of everything. I mean, I still have that mentality of, I want to make everything at all times. Um, I'm very excited for uh, upcoming television opportunities. Uh, I'm also hoping to write my own television show and I'm in the works with uh, an idea that I had and I've written the pilot and we're pitching it now. So fingers crossed. Um, But that would be a dream of mine, you know, to to make a a television show and just experience making something with a bigger budget and more people and more collaborators. And um, that's really enticing to me.
0: And the hundred thousand decisions that have to go into every episode and and every day that you're on set.
2: I'm probably going to hate it because of course, you know, I'm so used to saying, oh, I have an idea in the morning. And then in the afternoon we film it. And then in the evening we post it, you know, I'm so used to that.
0: And that's an incredible feeling.
2: And it's beautiful too, because you, you get past that perfectionism that we all look for, you know, you just, you just make it. And especially, I mean, the YouTube algorithm, it wants weekly videos. So you can't be precious about your ideas. You just have to make them. And therefore, you know, you get a lot of really cool discoveries along the way.
0: Do you think that that has altered your, your learning as an actor? Because you have to be, I think just much more instinctual. You have to just say, listen, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. Whereas before when there's time and there's money and you're working on a different kind of project, uh, you can take time and money, but I think sometimes without that you do more interesting work.
2: I think so too. I really do. I think sometimes, uh, actors in particular are too precious about the roles, you know, when the realities are you just, just say the lines, you know, sometimes <laughs> that's all it is. That's all you have yeah. to do. um, But again, with with YouTube or or online content creation, I mean, I've tried characters that I would never audition for. And that's the that's the freedom that I've had. I've tried accents and, and different ages and stuff that you'd never see on television. Yeah. And so I really think it strengthened my acting in that realm.
0: That was Julie Nolke on The Richard Krauss Show. You can see her online in Explaining the Pandemic to My Past Self on YouTube and on television in Run the Burbs on CBC. In this segment, we'll meet multi-award-winning humanitarian and community activist, Akila Newton. She joins me today to discuss her latest project, Big Dreamers, the Canadian Black History Activity Book for Kids, Volume 2. It's a celebration of the Black Canadians who overcame adversity and went on to achieve greatness while changing the course of history. Akilah Newton joined me via Zoom. You studied music, uh, drama, and dance. Uh, You have performed on stage. And I think that's where uh, this idea that you have that the arts can really feed people and really help people uh, comes from. Tell me a little bit about that background and how it translates itself into the work that you do as an activist.
3: My performance background is more from my younger years. <laughs> so all throughout high school in theater, uh, and theater and jump, I should say, I was doing theater school, Doing dance anything that I could, you know, right. do to get involved to be on stage. I loved it. And then, actually, when I got older and went to university, I moved to Liverpool, England, and studied entertainment management. So that was my first taste of doing behind the scenes in the the arts and entertainment industry. And I loved how you could basically mobilize a bunch of actors, get them to do what you want them to do. <laughs> I was like, wait a second, I think I'm onto something here. So then I was like, I think I need to be behind the scenes managing projects and managing people so I really really love that so once I graduated university I moved back to Montreal Uh, I had a few jobs here and there in the art sector but nothing that really spoke to me Um, and at one point I was working at a performing arts school that was really great and all but um, in reality they were charging way too much for their classes and I didn't like the fact that they were only allowing people from you know the upper class, essentially, to take partner classes. So I was like, no, this is not OK. Yeah. This should be accessible to anyone from any socioeconomic background. So at that point, I decided to start a nonprofit organization that would allow access to high quality arts with established artists for nothing or very minimal cost. So I started my organization, Overture with the Arts, in April of 2009. And 13 years later, we're still going strong. Over 65,000 youth have taken part in either our in-school or after-school programs. And it's not just about, you know doing a dance choreography or doing uh, reciting lines in theater, we really do want to have a message that's attached to the art that the youth are creating.
0: And what is that message?
3: Yeah. So essentially we just want kids to know that there still are many, many injustices in the world and they can do anything to basically be a part of the positive changes Mm. uh, in the world today. And if it's a matter of singing a song that has, uh, you know, really important lyrics, or if it's a matter of painting uh, a picture that has strong messaging as well, uh, the arts can be that tool to help communicate these messages and, and, work towards activism.
0: In uh, some marginalized communities, the idea of representation is so important in terms of having people understand that you know arts can literally save people's lives.
3: Absolutely, and the example that I often use is that song Despacito that came out a few years ago I have absolutely no clue what the artist is saying because I don't speak Spanish, but I just remember how it made me feel. I would hear it and it would just make me feel so much joy and I would feel happy hearing it. And that's what the arts can do for people. You can be from so many different backgrounds, speak different languages. And it's that feeling that really brings people together and unites communities. And that's why the arts is so important.
0: And I've been reading your resume here and I've got pages. Your resume is really (laughs) long. How do you find time to balance everything
3: yeah so it did get to a point where it did become too much so <laughs> it's like i'm one person i cannot do all this i'm overwhelmed yeah. so now over the arts does have you know a couple of part-time volunteers that do manage specific programs while i'm just overseeing things uh and then my new baby big dreamers my publishing company yeah. is you know i'm hands-on Fully in it. But as you said, everything really is connected. So through Overture with the Arts, as I said, we do a lot with Arts for Social Change. And one of our most popular programs is our annual Black History Month school tour. So I have a twin brother named O'Mary Newton. He's an actor, spoken word artist, director, producer. He also wears multiple hats. Um, and that must just run in every-
0: the family, does it? Where you?
3: <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah, we get bored very easily. <laughs> Yeah, so essentially we partnered up a few years ago uh, and we created presentations that use spoken word and music and fused it with history lessons. And it's basically an edutainment presentation where we're really keeping students engaged and teaching them specifically about Canadian Black history.
0: You're listening to Akila Newton on The Richard Krauss Show. Find her book. Big Dreamers, the Canadian Black History Activity Book for Kids, Volume 2, wherever fine books are sold.
3: So from that and going into schools and meeting with students and staff, I noticed that there were very few resources about Canadian Black history. Oftentimes students would tell us like the little that we are doing for Black History Month is focusing on the states. We focused on Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Civil Rights Movement, all very, very important because that did help change the world. However, we have Viola Desmond here, we have Stanley G. Grizzle, we have Willie O'Ree, and these stories aren't being shared. It's not being taught in schools, so we made it our mission. So when I realized that there was a lack of resources, a light bulb went off in my head and I thought, wait a second, My brother and I have been teaching this for so long. I've got a wealth of knowledge just stored in my brain. Why don't I just write a book for children?
0: (laughs) There's Big Dreamers, the Canadian Black History Activity Book for Kids, Volume 1, and now Volume 2. Um, What can people expect to find uh, when they open up the book?
3: Yeah, and there's actually a third book as well. So there's Volume 1 and Volume 2 of Big Dreamers, and both of those books are activity books. uh, So children can color in every single page. There are fun activities like crossword puzzles, connect the dots and quizzes. So kids basically are learning in volume one, it's an alphabet of 26 different black Canadians or people who have really you know, helped shape Canada who immigrated here. Um, and they're just really learning about these phenomenal stories and they're learning about Canadian history because mm-hmm. black history is Canadian history. So that's volume one. Volume two is just a continuation of, of these lessons, and it's broken down by a province. So, you know, we're talking about phenomenal trailblazers, but we're also talking about historic Black communities that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of them had to suffer systemic demise. Um, so we're teaching these kids about these American, American, sorry, these amazing uh, communities that yep. they, they haven't heard of. And then my third book, Mover Shakers History Makers, the Canadian Black History Book of Rhymes. It's actually the same 26 people that are featured in Big Dreamers Volume One. And the reason why it's the same people is because although um, bookstores and schools were loving my activity books, libraries told me, we love the content, but we can't carry activity books because kids color in them. I was like, oh, right. (laughs) Yeah, they only get checked (laughs) out
0: once and that's it, I
3: guess. (laughs) Which is a great business model to have, but (laughs) let's be real. Libraries aren't going to buy 100 copies of my book every year. So it didn't occur to me at the time when I wrote the book. I just thought, oh, it'll be really fun and engaging to have it with coloring pages and activities. So I'm like, okay, well, then I need to find a way to share the stories differently. So then Mover Shakers, History Makers came out in January of 2021. And it's fun rhyming verses instead of just straight uh, sentences.
0: And the response has been very good. The books are selling from what I understand. People are enjoying them. Ah. Uh, tell me what you hear about that as the author Uh, Of a series of books that obviously mean something to you, you know, personally and professionally. So tell me a little bit about what it means to you and what people have said to you when they've studied the books.
3: Well, honestly, it means a lot that I'm able to share these stories because I was privileged when I was a young kid. My parents always taught Black history in the home. Mm -hmm. We had books about the Underground Railroad and Harriet Tubman at home. So it just means a lot when I see young kids, Black and white kids telling me, oh my God, I never heard about Viola Desmond. I can't believe that people were so mean to her. That shouldn't have happened. So When I hear that kids are learning about these stories and they see the injustices, it just shows me and tells me that, you know, these books are so needed. And oftentimes parents will tell me, I was reading your book to my child and I'm embarrassed because I didn't even know mm. half of these stories. So parents and kids are really learning a lot from the books uh, and they're inspired by the stories that they're learning.
0: That was Akilah Newton on the Richard Crow show. Find out all about her book, big dreamers, the Canadian black history activity book for kids, volume two, and all of her other projects at the website, bigdreamers.ca, all the information that you need is right there. My next guest, Mark Williams, has a very familiar face. He became famous playing English wizard Arthur Weasley in seven of the hit Harry Potter films. Since wrapping up the Potter movies, Williams has starred in Father Brown, one of the UK's longest-running daytime drama series on the BBC. He plays the lead character, a Roman Catholic priest who somehow finds himself involved in one murder after another and always outwits the bumbling policeman to get to the bottom of each case first. The popular series is now available on BritBox in Canada. Mark Williams joins me to chat about the show from his home in England. Now, let's talk about Father Brown. Uh, This is so successful. Uh, Why do you think that it has struck such a chord with viewers?
4: Um, I think it's good storytelling. Mm. Um, and it's kind of not too, there's not a lot of ego in it. I mean, he's not an egotistical character and I think people respond to that. Um, I guess. Um, and y- you're not being um, battered by opinion. You're not being told what to think, mm-hmm. uh, which is increasingly seems to be what drama is about at the moment.
0: Well, it, I, I think, uh, that, it has a different appeal than other detective stories like uh, Sherlock Holmes or something like that, because uh, it is not about judgment so much. It's not about the punishment. It's about really getting to know uh, the characters and the motivations behind the, the terrible things that these yeah. people have done.
4: Yeah, it's not an intellectual puzzle, which is the kind of um, raison d'etre of quite a lot of the Golden Age done it? you know it's there, there's an objectivity to solving the problem whereas he's anything but objective he's subjective you know because of his faith
0: when you play a character like this over the course of many years uh do you get a greater understanding of what makes him tick or for you is it all on the page
4: that's a good question but i have to say yeah first of all one i'm an actor not a psychoanalyst um and um um, I I would debate with anybody about how much they understand anybody, even themselves people talk about it a lot but they don't understand they may understand certain threads of behaviour but they don't understand the whole thing how can you? It's impossible mm-hmm. it's a fantasy to believe that um, and sometimes a controlling fantasy um, and I think that one thing I have learned is to is to let go and to trust the page. I mean, I'm never one of those actors who say, oh, he wouldn't do that. How do you know he wouldn't? How do you know he wouldn't do that? Um, so, you know, character reveals itself often in the things that are unexpected. And I like that very much. It's like, it's not a challenge. I think it's, it's an absolute help, it's a godsend. Uh, to you know just he's okay he's done something completely out of character brilliant who doesn't
0: And do you think that that approach to character uh, is, I don't know, I don't want to say uniquely uh, British, but American actors tend to really talk a lot more about their characters and say things like, my character wouldn't do that. I don't get that sense so much from British actors or Canadian actors, for that matter, who I tend to think uh, are much more in the British tradition than Americans are. Do you think that has something to do with it?
4: Um, I think what... Quite a lot of what he has to do with his, his stage, the stage and training, and an acquaintance with Shakespeare, um, um, and you, you, the the character writing is so much more complex than you could possibly come up with um, if you just sit there in a room and and read uh, your lines and and decide what you're going to think about your character, um, and also. One thing that the American approach, as, as you say, is that it kind of forgets all the other people around you, mm. like the other actors, like, you know, you're listening to them because that's moderate, modulating everything you do. It's like being in a band rather than being a kind of soloist.
0: You're listening to my interview with Mark Williams on The Richard Krause Show. Watch him in the popular detective drama, Father Brown, now available on BritBox. Uh, this show was set in the 1950s, and that informs, uh, I think, a great deal of the storytelling. Why is uh, the date at which it takes place so important to uh, the whole feel of the show?
4: <clears throat> I think w- what happened after the war is that all the things we um, consider to be modern in the way we deal with each other, and a lot of um, society has its roots there Um, in the experiences people had of of what happened during the war and the upheaval and also what had to do with afterwards. Um, And um, the way they treat each other, which had to be thought about quite a lot, I think, after everybody found out what had been going on. And um, people look to themselves a bit more. I think um, um, the old prejudices, and I mean that advisedly, um, had to be put aside. And we still haven't quite done managed it yet. But at least there was a start made. Also, a lot of the modern things, you know, the um, mass media really took off there, and personal transport. Um, And people had more money, you know, they they were not bound by poverty to the extent that they knew they could eat, which people are forgetting is only, you know, it's less than 100 years old, the idea that hunger is not going to pursue you.
0: You say that a big part of Father Brown is learning to practice forgiveness. Uh, Is that the message of the show?
4: I don't think we've got a message apart from please watch our show. Um, (laughs) I, I don't think we're going for messages, no. I mean, I I would say that it, it, it's it's not, yeah, don't judge. And, you know, there's gonna be another side to every story. I mean, judgment seems key, and unfortunately we seem to be hurtling down the, the judgment route at the moment, where people are taking it upon themselves to judge. But judges, judgment is mine, saith the Lord i think you'll find
0: i, I think it's also uh, great that father brown being said in the 1950s there's no social media and so uh, a lot of that judgment well, that we just well, talked about comes that, from I, that
4: i disagree there's gossip mm. um there was there was incredibly powerful social media um you know localized but my god yeah oh no that these that things spread like wildfire with the same misinformation mm. gleefully handed on from person to person. The other thing you've got to remember is letters, which of course were private and secret mm. and often only after people's deaths do you find out what they were saying and what was being said to them. and some of that can come as a shock.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Nobody writes letters anymore. I do oh do you still yeah
4: only to only to a few people who yeah.
0: respond in kind yeah I, I i just think of one one of my memories of my late mother was sitting watching her write letters to people and it's just yeah. something that that in a lot of ways seems like uh of another age another time
4: no but we got a kind of a nostalgic memory of that because you read a lot of postcards and letters and mm-hmm. half of it is half of it's the weather and the rest is must go now must catch the post you know what really but the post's leaving in three minutes
0: there's, there's not a
4: there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of you know descriptive talent or kind of soul searching they're very superficial obviously of of often they're just about making contact you know which is exactly what we do now hi you know it's kind of emoticons on paper
0: that was mark williams you can see him on father brown on britbox that's all the time we have big thanks to all my guests but of course my biggest thanks goes to you for listening i'm richard krauss stay healthy stay happy stay safe stay weird we'll talk to you again soon